just love doing this series over the last five weeks. Uh, thank you so much for all of the feedback and comments that's been really positive. Uh, we really appreciate all that. And um, over this last four weeks, uh, we've been looking at this incredible story that Jesus tells uh, in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 15, he tells three stories. He tells a story of a lost coin. He tells a story of a lost sheep. And then he tells this story of these two sons. And um, we call it the, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, and we always think when we, when we hear the story of the younger son who takes the, sh- the money from his father and then who, who goes away and he becomes a prodigal. And um, uh, he goes off to a distant country, he sells all he has, he squandered his life. And he has an awakening, he has an awakening to longing, there must be more to life than this. He has an awakening to regret, I wish I could start all over again. Then he has an awakening to love as he comes home and God loves me, the Father loves me deeply after all. And then last week we looked at this awakening to life, how am I going to live this life out? But you know the interesting thing about it all is, is that there's another dimension Because I think there's another awakening that goes on in his life that needs to go on in ours as well. And it's what I call an awakening to generosity. Because what he experiences in the heart of the Father is an incredibly generous man. And generosity in the Bible is defined as lavishness, open-handedness, abundance, unselfishness, richness, inexhaustibility. And then it says, someone happy to give time, money and kindness to people. An awakening to generosity. But of course the question that I have is, did he then go on to live a generous life? And we'll look at that later. We'll never really know from the text because the story stops. But you see the younger son is not the only character in the story because the younger son had a brother. Cunningly enough, we call it the elder brother. And it says in verse 25 of this text, meanwhile the elder brother was in the field. And I think we've spent four weeks on the younger brother. We're only going to spend one week on the elder brother. But for many of us, actually, the elder brother is going to be a much better look at who we are than maybe the younger one. You see, the elder brother, he was the sensible one. Who's the sensible one here? Oh, both of you. Okay. He was the sen- I'm going to have to do something for a moment. Could you just talk amongst yourselves for a minute? I'm going to have to tie my shoelace, otherwise I am going to fall flat on my face here, okay? So I'm going to do that. If you could just talk to the person next to you and say, am I really sensible or not? Do, do that for one second. Great. That looked great on the YouTube filming there, that did, I tell you. 25 years of preaching, I've never ever had to do that. There's a first time for everything. I feel I've grown through the process. So, he is the sensible one, the mature one, the responsible one, the trustworthy one, the hardworking, conscientious, disciplined one. All good qualities, but he's as much a prodigal as the other one. You see, whatever it is that disconnects you from the heart of the Father makes you a prodigal. A prodigal is the inability or unwillingness to receive the Father's love. The younger son went to a distant country and became a prodigal. The older brother, the elder brother, never left the house but was a prodigal. See, it doesn't matter whether rebellion or religion keeps you away from God. The effect is the same. And what's interesting is that Jesus is such a master storyteller. In the crowd that day, he has two groups of people, the Bible says. There was a group that that they referred to as the tax collectors and sinners. That's like us, okay? everybody else that's like the people who aren't that good at being religious who kind of don't quite get it right all the time who can't quite make the grade and then there's the Pharisees and teachers of the law who were excellent at being religious and Jesus tells the story of two sons 
But what's so brilliant is that the two sons represent the two groups of people in the crowd that day. The younger son represents the ordinary people, the, the kind of tax collectors and sinners, the ones that we're a bit rebellious, we're not great at being religious. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law represent the elder brother. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the elder brother syndrome. Because it's really easy, having come home to God, for us to then become a prodigal again as we migrate from being the younger son to being the elder brother. The elder brother syndrome. And there are a few things that I think mark it out. The first thing is this, I define it. I define it. The elder brother, the mark of a Pharisee. And you know, Pharisees get a really bad name. If you were called a Pharisee, isn't that great, is it? But actually the Pharisees, when they started out in Jewish history, were great guys. They loved God with a passion and with a zeal. And they wanted to keep the faith pure but they just got misguided and misdirected. And their passion went into the, the wrong places. And so they, 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 um, in, in their effort to try and keep the faith of Israel, they developed a load of complex rules, all based around the 248 positive and 365 negative commands in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. A lot of long words there, I know that. And they developed all these different complex rules that God never intended. So one of them was this. You were forbidden on the Sabbath to glance in a mirror. That would be a real shock for many of us this morning, wouldn't it? You were forbidden on the Sabbath to glance in a mirror. The reason was, if you glanced in a mirror, you might see a grey hair and be tempted to pluck it out. And that's work and that's forbidden. That's the kind of craziness that they got into. The idea, if, if, can I pray if I'm working in the top of a tree on a Sabbath? It's like, well, you should be. It's crazy. This is the one I love. If I make bread while I'm naked, is that bread appropriate offering for the temple? I think that's maybe where that phrase burn your buns comes from, but I'm not sure, but we're not going to go there. Okay. If I make bread while I'm naked, that's just weird. Can a man divorce his wife for burning the meal? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that right? I never knew that. That was one of the Pharisees' laws. You could divorce your wife for burning the meal. Shocking. But you know, before we get too condemning of these guys, their history of the church is good, bad, and at times, very ugly. People in the church, we have used the Bible to defend apartheid, slavery, the subjugation of women, never what God intended it to be. We have taken that, and that's what Pharisees do. That's what the elder brothers do. I define it. We need to beware of rule making. As the son approaches the house, he hears music and laughter. Let me just say something. At the heart, <laughs> at the heart of the universe, there is a party planner. Hello? At the heart of our universe, there is a party planner. And you may think, whoa, hang on a minute. At the heart of the universe, there's got to be God. There is. And God is a party planner. That's what he does. And the Father is a representation of who God is. And that party planning God is a God of generosity. The heart of the universe is a party planner. And you know, gloomy churches will never change the world. They really won't. People who look like they've been baptised in vinegar are never going to change the world. It's not going to happen. In fact, a British student did, a, did an analysis on a study on uh, churches around the world that were growing and making an impact in their community. And they were all shapes and sizes, all styles and approaches. The one factor, he said, that, that, this, that, that they all had in common is they all knew how to laugh. How deep is that? 
And we've missed that. You know, I was brought up with this idea that you've got to be serious about God, and we are serious about God. But that means you've got to look like you're serious. Do you know what I mean? But actually, at the heart of the universe is a party planning God who loves nothing more than to throw on a party and put some music on and rejoice and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. That's who our God is. He's a party planning God. Gordon MacDonald, great guy. He said, it is the heart that is not yet sure of its God that is afraid to laugh in his presence. You know, I, I get, you know, despondent at times. I remember some years ago when me and Lee, a guy, worship leader here, a friend of mine, and we were leading a Christian holiday, a Christian skiing holiday. It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Okay, and we were leading this holiday and there was a lady there and she, she, every, she was so gloomy and miserable and every time we laughed or we told a joke or we did anything that was like that, she criticised And I just thought, oh dear, you know, if we don't come to understand an awakening to generosity is an awakening to a party planning God, to know that the centre of the universe is a God who loves joy. Amen? God who loves joy. One of my favourite authors is a guy called Tony Campolo and he wrote this, there really isn't anything frivolous about having fun. Learning how to have fun is one of the most serious subjects in the world. Without fun, marriages don't work. When jobs aren't fun, they become intolerable and dehumanising. When church is not fun, religion becomes a drag. When life is not fun, it is hard to be spiritual. And then in one of his books, he tells this great story, which I know I've told before, and it's so good. And he said this, Once when I was in the elevator of a New York skyscraper filled with very serious-faced business people, so he's in the elevator, you got it, in the lift, uh, he said, I smiled and looked around, and I said to everyone, lighten up, we're going to be travelling together for quite a while. What do you say we sing? <laughs> Incredibly, they did. I don't know whether they were intimidated by me or just wanted to have some fun, but businessmen and businesswomen women with briefcases in their hand in power suits joined me in singing, You Are My Sunshine. <laughs> Amazing. When I got off at the 70th floor, one man got off and walked down the hall with me wearing a big smile on his face. I asked him, are you going to, to the same meeting I'm going to? Nah, he said, I just want to finish the song. It's amazing. And the reason I love that story so much is that several years ago, um, really good friends of ours, Paul and Priscilla Reed, who are coming here in March for the iGrow conference and are going to be here on the Sunday. And if you've not met them, they are so such brilliant people. They're in their early 60s now, but, but they're the most fun people I've ever met. And when, we, when they first came over to us, we didn't know them all that well. Alison and myself, my wife, we took them out for a meal in Birmingham and we were in an elevator filled with people and they did that. Paul turned around and said, let's have a sing in his Northern Irish accent. And I said to Alison, what have we done? Yeah, and I remember the first time that they stayed with my mom and dad. My mom was here this morning. And mom and dad didn't know them. They walked in the house. They went straight upstairs, got in their pyjamas and walked down into the lounge. It's a little bit weird. And then, and then their big Irish supporters and Irish Ireland were playing someone in rugby. And my mom and dad said to me, we watched as they ran around the lounge every time Ireland scored. And they love God and they're serious about God, but they have a lot of fun. I think that's representation of who is at the centre of the universe. Because at the centre of the universe, there is a party planner. Isn't that great? And there's got to be an awakening to generosity. But Pharisees hate this. And as the elder brother comes towards the party, he hates the sound of music and laughter and joy. Look in verse 
25. Meanwhile, the eldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. Isn't that really sad? That in church, people get angry. You know, sometimes they get angry in the midst of celebration. And they come and they say, yeah, the music's too loud and this and I don't like that and that and the other and this. And I'm like, are you not in the same space? Look at what's happening. Look at what God's doing. Your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf. Because at the heart of the universe is a party planning God. And the word that's used here in the original language, the word angry means enraged. And I think it's enraged because in the heart of a Pharisee, in the heart of an elder brother, I define it. You see, in his mind, this should have been Kazaza. Do you remember Kazaza a few weeks ago? That ancient ritual of when a son like this came home, they would break the pots symbolically to say, you're finished with the community. You are cut off from the community. It should have been Kazaza. It shouldn't have been a party because I define it. That's the mark of an elder brother. Just as an aside, culturally, the elder brother should have been serving at this party, welcoming the guests. If you're too big to serve, you're way too small to lead. You're too big to serve, you are way too small to lead. And then in a moment of dramatic tension and beauty in verse 28, it says, So his father went out and pleaded with him. The first prodigal who left the house has come home. The second prodigal who didn't leave the house has now stepped out of the house. And he goes out and he pleads with him. And scholars believe the phrase that's used here is the same word that Jesus uses for the shepherd and the woman who search for the lost sheep and the lost coin. And the elder son then reveals where his heart really is. Let's, let's, have, let's have a look at this. We can go to the next one. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. This is a revelation of his heart. And never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, but this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Oh, doesn't your heart break? This is a revelation of where his heart is. Not only does a Pharisee define it, a Pharisee says, I do it. All these years I've been working for you. I've been working hard. I've been a good boy. I do it. He also says, I deserve it because of what I've done for you. I demand it, that sense of entitlement. I decide it because of what I've done. I get to say who gets generosity and who doesn't. That's really scary. Then the father speaks again. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. It's like I couldn't do anything else. Because at the heart of the universe, the centre of the universe is a party planner. I couldn't do anything else. We had to celebrate again because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The shock continues. How can the older brother speak to his father like this? The Pharisees are shocked. But in, in, in the original text, it says the father spoke tenderly and the word son in the original is my beloved son. And literally the father is begging this elder brother to come. The problem for the elder brother and the younger is they both fail to realise that the father values relationship more than rules. 
And he stepped out of the house, not to restore the rules, but to restore the relationship. And rules are important. And guidelines and framework, all that's important. But at the heart of the Father is the heart of relationship. So here's the question. How did the story end? How's the story end? Did the elder brother ever come into the party? Did the younger son ever leave the house again? Did either of the sons ever break their father's heart? Did the fattened calf ever recover? I know the answer to that one, not the others. And the truth is, we don't know the answer to those questions because the story was left open-ended. Why? Because we get to continue it. Don't you love it when you get to a, you're watching a great box set and it's just coming to that moment and it's to be, don't you love that to be continued moment? <gasps> and the reason that I think Jesus left the story unfinished is because you and I get to finish it. Are we going to be the younger son that gets bored again and says, nah, I'm going to clear off. Are we going to be the elder son that, that is the Pharisee that never comes into the party? Or are we going to come home and get that awakening to generosity? I believe when we get that awakening to generosity, the world will watch out. Andy Stanley, a great leader in North America, said, generosity makes us impossible to ignore. Generosity makes us impossible. Have you and I been awakened to generosity? So if we say we've come home, if we say we know God this morning, and I know that you might not all say that, if we say we've awakened to generosity, how do you know you've awakened to generosity? In the next five to six minutes, I want to give you three indicators. And I want you to use this almost as a little kind of process tool yourself. And as I go through these, just ask yourself, is this me? Is this how I live? Is this my default? Is this my go-to attitude? Is this what I do? Is this how I live? Because if it isn't, you need an awakening to generosity. Here's the first one. If your generosity, it will make us grateful. We'll be grateful people. You know, the enemy of gratitude is envy, isn't it? And if you say, oh no, I'm not an envious person, you're a liar. Or you're deluded, one of the two, because we've got envy in the state of all of us. The last two days, we've been at some of the staff, we've been away at a two-day conference. And um, in one of the, the lunch times, I think I was chatting to this other person that I know from another church. And she's a, young, a younger leader. And uh, we know each other quite well. But she says, you know, she says, um, I, I was watching, I was looking at social media and, and your church, you know, from Christmas and that. And these photographs, and that, you seem to all, you all have such a good time and you all love each other. And it's so bright and it's so great. And she, and she started to say, we haven't got that. We're not that. And I stopped and said, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. you're looking at social media not the real thing now yes that all is true but that's not the whole truth you compare your our social media world with your real world don't do that we all do it don't we we all do it and then it creates envy and this is the best definition of envy I've ever heard envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's lives while ignoring God's goodness in ours listen to this you have a ticket to heaven no thief can take. Come on. You have an eternal home no divorce can break. Every sin of your life has been cast into the sea. Every mistake you've made is nailed to the tree. You are a blood-bought and heaven-made, a child of God forever saved. So be grateful, forever joyful, for isn't it true what you don't have is much less than what you do. Great words written by Max Licado, if you know who he is. 
<laughs> what you don't have is much less than what you do. Folks, we need to be grateful, don't we? An awakening to generosity, it must make us grateful. But secondly, it will also make us gracious towards other people. A gracious person is slow to take credit and quick to give praise. A gracious person doesn't seek to embarrass others, but looks out for them. Did you notice the elder brother, when he's really angry and he says, this son of yours, not this, not this brother of mine, this son of yours, he squandered his wealth on what? Say the word in church, go on. He squandered his wealth on prostitutes. Do you notice it's nowhere in the story? Nowhere in the story does it say, somebody said that way too loud. It says nowhere in the story does it say anything about prostitutes. So we don't know whether that's even true or not. But even if it's not, the elder brother took the opportunity to shame and embarrass the younger son who'd just come home. It's not gracious. I want to be gracious. Being gracious means we cover, we don't expose. We don't judge. We say, hey, Hey, you're loved. You're, it's level ground here, isn't it? At the cross, it's level ground. That's what graciousness does. A gracious person doesn't hog the conversation or the limelight. A gracious person gives the benefit of the doubt and extends what we've received, which is grace. There was a woman in the Bible, who the Bible does say was a prostitute, who anointed the feet of Jesus with her tears and with expensive perfume. And the Bible says of her in the message translation, it's so good. She was forgiven many, many sins. And so she is very, very grateful. I love that. She was forgiven many, many sins. So she is very, very grateful. And then it says, if the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. And when we know, and I, I, I'm completely, you know, I never ever want to get over the fact that God has died for me. And that he loves me. And I wasn't a particularly bad person in that sense. Do you know what I mean? And I haven't got that dramatic story of drug addiction and, and sex, drugs and rock and roll. I had some rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, that's about it. I, I haven't got all that kind of story. Do you know what I mean? But I know that I was as far away from God as it's possible to get. And Jesus died for me and loves me and has accepted me and has given me grace. And I never want to get over that. And when, you, when you're awakened to that generosity, it's got to make you gracious towards other people. And then finally, awakening to generosity makes you grateful and it makes you gracious. But it also, here it is, rocket science, makes you generous. If you're not generous, I want to suggest maybe you haven't had an awakening to generosity. Once a man said, if I had some extra money, I'd give it to God. But I have just enough money to support myself and my family. And the same man said, if I had some extra time, I'd give it to God. But every minute is taken up with my job, my family, my clubs and what have you. Every single minute. The same man said, if I had some talent, I'd give it to God. But I have no lovely voice. I have no special skill. I've never been able to lead a group. I can't think cleverly or quickly the way I'd like to. And God was touched. And God gave that man money, time and a glorious talent. And then he waited and waited and waited. Then after a while, God shrugged his shoulders and he took all those things right back from the man. The money, the time and the glorious talent. After a while, the man sighed and said, if only I had some of that money back, I give it to God. If only I had some of that time, I give it to God. If only I could rediscover some of that talent, I give it to God. And God said, oh, shut up. And the man told some of his friends, you know, I'm not so sure I believe in God anymore. 
I find that a really stark and powerful old illustration. Because I think one of the last things to get converted in any person is their wallet. And if you've been awakened to the generosity of God, you have to become a generous person. Not because God is telling you to, but because you can't help it. Because you've been brought in by the party planning God into the greatest feast and celebration there is. And the Father says, all I have is yours. So what God does is he gives us all of this great, incredible stuff. But we recognise it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to him. And it's not us. Because what we have shouldn't hold us. What we have, we should hold lightly and surrender it to the God who is the creator of the universe. Are you generous? You know, just as baptism is the outward sign of beginning a relationship with Jesus, like we witnessed last week, generosity is the outward sign of Jesus continually living daily in your life. We start with this outward sign of baptism. We continue with this outward sign of generosity. And I want to talk a little bit about this because I think generosity is about how are we with our time? How are we with our talents? And how are we with the other T, our treasures, which I'll make clearer for you, money. At the first service, the minute I said that, three people got up and walked out for various reasons. It was really funny. I did the comic thing where I embarrassed them, okay? But I'm not going to do that with you this morning. And they were fine with it. But I wonder how many of us switch off and get up and vacate the room or in our heads the minute we hear about money. And yet Jesus spoke about money more than he spoke about anything else. We don't talk a lot about money here because we, we know that that stereotype, prejudice kind of view of the church, always after your money. Listen, we don't want something from you. We really want something for you. And money has a grip on us like nothing else. But when we are awakened to generosity and to the love of the Father, we become generous people. Anne Frank, who's a great woman, she said, no one has ever become poor by giving. And I want to talk to you about money for a moment. And I, I, we, me and my wife, we practice uh, the principle of tithing, giving 10% of our income to God through the local church as a start. And then everything else we've got is God's anyway. And we get to live the adventure of saying, God, how do you want us to use this? What do you want us to do with this? Which is brilliant. And, and I often get people say to me, oh, tithing, that's so old school, isn't it? That's so Old Testament. It is Old Testament, but it's New Testament as well. Then people say, it's all about the law. And then I'm like, yeah, it's about the law. But Jesus talked about it. And actually, it's before the law as well. And they say, really? And I say, yeah, let me show you. The principle of this is right back in the Garden of Eden. And I only saw this recently and it blew my mind. Because God said, all this stuff in the garden is yours to Adam and Eve. And you can enjoy all of it. Knock yourself out. Have a great time. Do you know what I mean? Go procreate. Have fun. This is a fantastic party, okay? He said, the only thing I'd say is there's one tree. Don't touch that one. Because that tree belongs to me. That's the principle of tithing. The principle is first things first. We don't give a tithe. I don't give my tithe to God. I return it because it belongs to him anyway. And God said, all this stuff is yours. That one, don't touch that one. So I give to God first at the start of the month, not the end of the month. Because not in the leftovers, because that's not honouring to God. When you've been awakened to generosity, you want to give something to God or return it to God first. Then you say, because I'm going to honour you first, God. And then we get the adventure of living with the rest and paying some bills and doing some stuff, having some fun, blessing some other people where God leads us to do that. That's an incredible adventure. It's the same principle with time, with everything. We give to God first. That's what happens when you're awakened to the generosity of God. 
Someone said this, people give not from the top of their purses, but from the bottom of their hearts. If you desire to become a more generous giver, don't wait for your income to change. Change your heart. Do that and you become a giver regardless of your income or circumstances. I think giving draws our heart towards Christ because Jesus says where your heart is, there your treasure is. Where your treasure is, your heart, it's linked. Giving develops godly character. Giving allows us to invest in eternity and giving produces a blessing to the giver, sometimes financially, but in other, in other ways. The Bible says he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Could generosity be part of our growth strategy? You know, I, I want to finish in a moment. My, my heart for us as a church and our heart as leaders in this whole building bigger people is we would love to be known more than anything else as a generous church. Not just in terms of finance, but in terms of who we are to other people. We want to be grateful people, don't we? We want to be gracious to it, but we want to be generous with what God has given us. We want to bless other people. We want to open up to other people. Could we make generosity part of our growth strategy? You know, yesterday when we were at this conference, and I want to tell you this story because it slightly affected me, impacted me. And um, the, the last speaker in the day was, was a lady who used to be part of the Salvation Army that I grew up in. And she's a very famous international speaker, incredible communicator. And she told a story which was so powerful. And the story was that she, she was, uh, worked in downtown Vancouver in Canada. And um, she worked uh, in, these, in these areas of deprivation where there was 7,000 drug users in this one area of, of downtown Vancouver. Uh, and she said, incredibly horrendous situation. But two of these guys became Christians. They came home to God. They were awakened to who God was. And they wanted to get married. And they wanted to get married in the streets where they used to shoot up heroin and stuff. And so she showed us this picture of this wedding ceremony in the streets, in between the blocks, in downtown Macovet. She said, we had, to, we had to get water cannons to get rid of the urine. And then, and then flower girls came and threw petals down and, and there was a string quartet. And, and then all the drug users and all these other people were looking out the windows and they were all invited to come to the party. Isn't that amazing? And this is the bit about the story. She says, and as I conducted the, the wedding ceremony, halfway through, there was a dumpster by the side. And she showed us this picture of this dumpster, you know, like a bin. We call it a bin. She says, and the lid opened and there was a guy living in the dumpster. And he come out and he looked at this, at this seed, at this wedding in the streets. And I don't want to offend you. This is, what, this is what he said. Holy shit. That's what he said. And she says, yes, you're right. It is. And he went down again under the thing. And they carried on and they, and, they did, and they did the ceremony. And then they walked off. And she said, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And I went back and I knocked on his dumpster. And then the lid came open and he come up again. And she said, hey, we want you to know these guys used to live here too. And they've, they've met God and they've got married. They'd love you to come. And this guy got out the dumpster and went to the party. And when I heard that story, I thought, oh, you know what? I need knocking out of my dumpster too as well. Because we all spend our time, don't we? In those places disconnected from God. But wouldn't it be amazing if we became a church? And I know that's our heart. Where everybody felt welcome. Where everybody was invited to the party. That's generosity, isn't it? where we'd actually leave our comfort. What would happen if the people we're praying for actually came in and met God? It might mess the church up. Or they might take our seat. All kinds of radical things might happen. But wouldn't that be okay? Because when you've been awakened to generosity, not only are you grateful, not only are you gracious, but you're generous as well.
I want to finish by playing you a story. And many of you have seen this story before. It's a story of several years ago. It's one of the guys in our church who's part of our worship team. He was here at the first service. And um, I, I listened, I watched this story again a, a week or two ago. And even though I've heard it and seen it many times, I wept because of the power of this story. And to me, this story encapsulates the two sons almost lived out in one person's story. You're going to hear uh, this guy in the story who leaves church, who leaves God, who doesn't believe in God in life. He becomes the younger son, but for a long time, he was the elder son who didn't leave church, but was as disconnected as when he did. But the, a miracle is that there came an awakening when he came home. And that changes everything. This is Russ's story. Hi, I'm Russ. Um, I became a Christian in late 1989, just as I was finishing my uni degree. Um, I was invited to church uh, by a friend of mine at uni. Um, and I ended up uh, meeting my wife at the church I went to in Netherton. Uh, and we got married in 92. Uh, and then, cut a long story short, we ended up at Zion Christian Centre. My church experience was uh, a very busy one. Um, we were both able to serve um, in, the, in the worship team because we're both musicians. Uh, we eventually took on the youth work um, and everything was going very, very well. Um, during uh, probably my last summer leading the youth, um, I started to have some serious doubts about my beliefs. I remember the one day coming to a head after a Sunday and I remember mentioning to Leon saying, uh, can I have a word with you for a moment? I really don't think I believe anymore. Uh, I'm really struggling with my faith. Um, and you know, that was the first time I'd owned up to it. I think part of the problem was that I was, um, I was pressing, pressing the problem down. I stopped coming to church. Um, I felt like a lot of things had mounted up pressure on my life from a lot of different angles. Things had happened with my job. Um, mine and Jan's relationship where I was, was rocky at the time as well. Um, and the pressure I felt with my doubts consuming me was very, very tangible and pretty much destroyed me. I had uh, what I'd probably call a nervous breakdown. Um, I got very, very depressed. Certain people kept in touch with me the whole time, which I'm very, very thankful for. Uh, but all I used to talk to them about was my doubts and started picking away at the very thing I'd believed for 20 years before. Uh, I felt like I'd taken some sort of religious glasses off. I remember labelling myself on my Tumblr blog as a recovering ex-Christian. But there's one thing that I tried to do and I used to say to myself for the whole experience that I was being honest with myself at any given point. But that being honest with myself actually turned on its head after a few years um, because I, I started to realise that um, I was missing something very important. I kept coming to the Christmas events at church uh, and I always remember leaving those events feeling like I'd experienced something but then it's slipping away again. I remember going out for a walk the one night um, and something I never do particularly is put my earphones on and listen to a podcast. Leon spoke from a passage from Mark 4 where it talks about um, 
Jesus and the disciples getting into a boat and travelling across a lake to another region. Uh, and a storm came upon the lake and the disciples feared for their lives. Um, but Jesus was asleep in the corner of the boat with his head on a cushion. And the disciples had to wake Jesus up in order for him to calm the storm. And, and Jesus said to the disciples, where's your faith? You have no faith. My whole life had been based on fear for at least the 12 months before that. And I remember listening to that podcast thinking, God is speaking directly to me. Um, but I'm not even sure I believe in God, so I don't, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> um, I'd owned up to my doubts, and now I've got to own up to believing again. <laughs> Throughout all my doubts, and my whole breakdown, and my depression, and then coming out the other side of that, how God had been asleep in this boat, and he'd never left me. I remember telling Leon this and him being amazed by what that had meant. Um, and so I drove home that night and I remember praying in the car for the first time in years and saying to God, how does a person wake God up? It's like, how do you do that? And it's like God said to me, just the slightest inclination that you showed me, the slightest turn of your heart back towards me that was enough losing my faith was like a bereavement um, but finding it again was something else I likened it to being completely lost and not recognising anything around you and then suddenly stumbling across your own front door and because you recognise that, you know you how. It's been almost a year now since I've been coming back to church and everything seems very new and exciting again. Uh, it's great to be back. Um, I've been slowly getting myself involved in volunteering again. Um, I'm really enjoying being involved in the worship team. I feel like I really have come home. People have said to me, you know, it's great to see you back, Russ. And I can honestly say with all my heart, yes, it is good to be back. Um, I'm really enjoying it because my relationship with God just seems so different. It's incredibly powerful, isn't it? Just that slightest inclination and an awakening. And I don't know where you're at this morning. And last Sunday, guy came to church. I looked at him and thought, I know you. He left here 18 years ago. Doesn't mean going to church. I said, what, what brought you back? And he said, <laughs> he said an awakening, followed by brutal honesty with immediate action. So that sounds familiar. He said, yeah, I've been watching. I've been watching. And God spoke to me. He was here again this morning at the first service. He says, all week, there's been this burning thing in my heart. I've got to get back. I've got to get back. And it's not back to a building, but back to the Father, back to the God who is at the centre of the universe, the party planning God. And I don't know where you are this morning, but God invites you back. God says, come home. Just the slightest inclination can change everything. Why don't we pray? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you this morning that you are an incredible God. 
Lord, we love You so much. We're so grateful today for who You are and for what You've done. God, I wanna pray for every single person here, every single person that's listening or watching this. And Lord, I pray that God, that You would be at work in their hearts. Lord, that You'd be at work in my heart. Lord, I, I become the prodigal every time I look for love outside of You, every time I get disconnected from Your heart. Lord, I become that prodigal. But God, I pray that today, today there would be an awakening inside every single one of us, an awakening to who You are and an awakening to generosity. And God, may we become generous people who go out and who knock on dumpsters of other people's lives and invite them to the party that the Kingdom of Heaven is throwing. God, may we become generous because of what You've done and who You are in our lives. And now, Lord, as we sing this incredible hymn, the story of what You've done on the cross, Lord, I pray at the end, when we declare, oh, praise the Name, Lord, I pray that there would be an explosion of gratitude and worship and celebration in here. That, God, that there would be a party of praise in here because You are the party planning God and You have welcomed me to Your party and You've thrown the party for me and for us and for every single person on planet Earth. So God, help us and send us out, I pray, to become and to be generous people who live out this generosity in our lives and in our workplaces and in our culture and in our communities and in our schools and in our colleges and in our streets and wherever You lead us to be, we pray, because You are an awesome God. Everyone said, Amen.